morning. Let us pray. Holy Father, we are delighted that we could come together as a family, as a church family, as members of your family. Um, And we come to worship you as a family through song, through prayer, through the reading of your word, through giving, and now as we sit and listen to what your word has to say. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word this morning. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. There was a musician, famous musician, who performed a concert, and after the concert, an admirer came up to him and said, I would give up everything to be able to play music as you do. To which the musician said, I have given up everything to play the music that I'm able to play. And for many of us, when we think about the greats, whether it be in music, in sports, or in business, most of them gave up a lot of things to be the greats. Whether it's Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky or whoever you place in that category, they gave up a lot of things. They spent a lot of hours going over scales over and over on their musical instruments. They would take thousands of shots a day to craft their skill. They would study hard in all the latest trends and investments to get to where they were. And so we look at these great people who have accomplished many different feats in whatever realm that you want to associate them with. We admire them. We see their dedication, their hard work. We know that it took a lot of sacrifice for them to get to the point to be one of the greats in their field. But we can look at them and we can see how much they give up. We can see that they put their craft first above everything else. But how about us? Do we have any goals or dreams that we've desired that we put up first? Maybe it was a college education where you sacrificed a lot to get that college education. Maybe it was you were working the night shift in order to pay for your college. Going through college, I know there was probably some long nights of study and writing papers that are due the next morning. There's finals to prepare for. Maybe it's you had a dream and a desire and a goal to become the CEO of whatever company that you're part of or start up your own business. And that takes a lot of sacrifice, a lot of work. It's long days and maybe even long nights in the office, working weekends and holidays, time away from family and friends and doing other things that you would want to do. Maybe it's training for a marathon. If you ever trained for a marathon, you got long runs on the weekends that are a couple hours long. 
take away from time and family. You can't, if you're training for a marathon, you can't just eat whatever you want. You have to make sure you're fueling your body with proper nutrition. And so whatever dreams and goals we have, there are things that we are willing to sacrifice to accomplish. And while all those things can be good, whether it's starting your own business or receiving a college education or running a marathon, we all give up stuff to accomplish those goals. We put, sometimes we put those goals and dreams first. This is the question that Jesus is going to answer for us today. Is ultimately, are you putting Jesus first? Are we willing to give up everything and make Jesus the priority even over relationships with one's own family? And so the big idea or the central theme today is this. A relationship with Jesus must take priority over everything, even the relationship with one's family. To put it simply, Jesus first. Jesus must have priority in one's life. And this is going to be explored in our text this morning in Matthew 12. So if you haven't already, would you please join me in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 46 through 50. There is a Bible in the pew in front of you, so if you don't have one, please use the Bible in front of you. And today I'll be using the English Standard Version. Now, before we address and dive into this passage, I want to just make a little note of some importance. Uh, If you are using an English Standard Version, uh, and you look at the verses in verses 46, and then it goes to verse 48, then verse 49, and then verse 50. Wait, hold on. There's missing verse 47. Is this a mistake by those who publish the ESV? Not necessarily. And this is something I just want to address briefly so we don't get hung up on it later. In some of your versions, you may have verse 47. If you're using the English Standard Version, you don't have verse 47. Why is that? Well, they're what we call textual criticism. Each translation we have, whether it's the ESV, CSB, NASB, King James, NIV, NLT, whatever version we have, they're a committee that comes around and translates the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into our English versions. And with that, they, there's five, over 5,000 different manuscripts that we have access to, and each of those manuscripts are um, kind of ranked with, depending on the location and the time frame that they're written in, Uh, and so some carry a little more weight than others. And so in our case, with those who translated the ESV and some of these other versions, they see and rely more on these other manuscripts that speak more and have uh, more importance and show that those manuscripts don't have verse 47. And scholars would say that this was probably added by some scribe Um, And ultimately, in verse 47, if we do have it or if we don't have it, it doesn't make any theological difference. It doesn't change the text at all. It doesn't contradict anything else within Scripture. Whoever added verse 47 
decided that we needed just a little bit of background, that someone approached Jesus to tell him that um, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking for you, because in verse 48, we see, but he, your Jesus, replied to the man who told him. So he's just giving a little bit of extra background, and so some versions may have verse 47, others may not, and our case, we use the ESV here, they do not have verse 47. And ultimately, what I want us to note that whether we have verse 47 or not in our translation, it doesn't make a theological difference. It doesn't change the text at all. It doesn't contradict the text. And so we still can proclaim that the text, especially this passage, is reliable. It is trustworthy. It is something that we can still learn from and gain from, and it's still inspired by the Holy Spirit, or is still breathed out by God. And so, we still can have confidence, knowing that Scripture is not in error, it's not full of errors, but we still have the Word of God, and it's still all-sufficient as He has intended it. And so, there's a lot more that could be said, there's a lot more that we could discuss on this, but this morning, I don't want to get hung up on whether we should include verse 47 or not. If you are more curious and want more conversation about this, please, I'd love to have more conversation after the service, or maybe sometime this week we could get together and talk more about why they did add it or didn't add it, um, and maybe some other situations within Scripture. But for our purpose today, note that this Scripture doesn't mean that Scripture's of error. It means that we still can trust Scripture. It doesn't change the text. It doesn't have change any theological uh, implications, that we still can study and preach from this passage. So with that, let us now dive into our text this morning in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, His mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. We see a couple things that while he was still speaking, Jesus, we see already he was speaking to the Pharisees, he was speaking to the scribes. We saw last week he gave a parable about the unclean spirit returning. And so he's in the middle of this conversation and his brothers and his mother came and wanted to talk with him, wanted to speak with him. Can you imagine if maybe my brothers and sisters were outside and Mark Hoffman quietly tries to sneak up and whispers in my ear as I'm trying to preach that, hey, your brothers and your sisters, they're outside. They're wanting to talk with you. It's this almost interruption of what Jesus is trying to do. Now, I'm just making mental note of that because we're going to revisit this in a little bit. A couple other things to note in verse 46, this word behold, look, pay attention. Something is about, something important is about to take place. Look, pay attention, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. While they physically and spatially were outside, 
This also, I think, indicates a realm of spiritual outsideness. And we see, not just in Matthew, but within the other Gospels, that during the life and ministry of Jesus, Mary and some of the brothers and sisters doubted Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus, even thought he was a little crazy. For example, in John 7, 1 through 5, says his brothers tell Jesus to leave because John records, for not even his brothers believed in him. Or in Mark 3, 20 through 21, Mark records this. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again also that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went outside to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And so his mother and brothers are outside, both physically, and I would make the case as well, spiritually, that they don't necessarily believe in Jesus, don't understand the work and mission of Jesus. And so they're maybe hearing some of these rumors of the Pharisees that they're trying, they're plotting to kill him. Maybe they're coming to approach Jesus to try to save him, to stop what he's doing before the Pharisees stop what he's doing. Also, this indicates that Mary and his brothers and sisters weren't following Jesus. They weren't like his disciples. His disciples, we see, are inside with Jesus while his family, the holy family, was outside. So there's some of these struggles here. They don't understand the mission of the cross. They don't understand that he came to save people from their sins by the way of the cross. They struggle to make sense that he is the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Or even just earlier in this passage that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah where it says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not uh, quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will have hope. So his family is struggling to make sense of who he is and the mission that he's been sent on. Some application for us today may be this. If we are believers, we may experience hostility even from family. And this again, comes from the lips of Jesus earlier in chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus says this, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. These are serious words. And so even if Jesus' family doubted him, didn't believe in him. 
we may also experience some doubt, some unbelief, some division, some hostility from our family. But I want to have a little sub-point of application too. While we may experience division or hostility from our family, our immediate blood relatives, for our beliefs in Jesus, also note, may we give it time. May we continue to pray. May we continue to set forth an example of what it means to follow Christ. Because this isn't, wasn't always the case. Mary and his brothers and sisters didn't always disbelieve him. But in John 19, who do we see at the cross? We see Mary. And Jesus looks down at Mary and says, and his disciple who he loved, and John records this, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to this uh, disciple, behold your mother. We see Mary was at the cross. Mary was able to physically and literally look on the cross of Jesus. But we also know that she also made a profession that Jesus wasn't just her son, but Jesus was her Lord and Savior. If we flip over to Acts chapter 1, the beginning of Acts chapter 1 verse 14, Luke records this. All, the, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we see that through time they did believe in Jesus. They believed that he wasn't just someone special or a good teacher. They believed that he was the Son of God who came to save. And they believed that he is the Lord. Now some of his brothers, we know, someone like James was over the head of the church of Jerusalem. And we see that he even wrote a letter in the New Testament, the book of James, to which he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He acknowledges that he is a servant to Jesus, that Jesus is his Lord. And so while our faith in Jesus Christ may cause hostility within family relation, while our family may not understand or realize why we believe in Jesus Christ, and it may be hard for some here even this morning to see family members and loved ones that do not believe in the hope that we have. But I hope and I want to encourage you May we continue to pray for them. May we continue to set forth an example and have conversation with them of why we do believe and trust in the Lord as He has brought His family to saving faith. May He also do with ours. 
So with that, let's go back into our passage this morning, back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 48. Jesus says this, But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? Jesus isn't ignorant, or he isn't being rude here. He knows who his mother is. He knows who his brothers are and his sisters are. He's not playing ignorant, but he's emphasizing that even though currently in this context, his biological, his blood relatives are outside Look at what he says next in verse 49. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. His disciples, we've seen them around already. We know some of their backgrounds. They're fishermen, they're tax collectors, they're zealots. Kind of a ragtag group. He says, These are my brothers. They're following him. They're going where he goes. They're not just physically outside, but, or they're not physically outside like his family, but they're inside with him. They're within arm's reach of Jesus. These are my mother and brothers. And he goes on, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now we read this verse and you may have some alarm bells going off. Wait, hold on. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This kind of sounds like works, doesn't it? How about this whole thing of being justified by faith and faith alone? How does this play into what is Jesus saying? Oh, if alarm bells do go off, I think that's a good thing. It shows that we are being students of the Word, that we're studying the Word properly. But I want to make the case that Jesus isn't proclaiming a works-based salvation or we have to work our way into the family but it's our works, our, our validation, they show forth our saving faith. So this doesn't contradict what Paul wrote about faith and faith alone. It doesn't contradict other things that Jesus says, like in John three sixteen, whoever believes in me will not perish. But our doing the will of his Father is not what saves us for faith. For it is faith is what saves, but the doing is the fruit and evidence of true and lively faith. For no one can muster up on their own ability or skill set or strength to do the will of God, but it wholly comes from the Spirit that Christ gives us. And so, our doing... As a result of our faith, it shows evidence to our faith. And within this context of Matthew 12, a few weeks ago, we saw a tree is known by its fruit. 
In Matthew 12, verse 33, it says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Remember one of Jesus' brothers, his name was James again, and James wrote a letter, and in that letter, in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at and it and goes away and it once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and pers- perseveres, being no hearer who forget, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And later on in chapter 2, verse 14, starting in verse 14, he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warned and filled, without giving them a thing needed for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works." You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up the son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also apart from works is dead. See, James is echoing Jesus here that faith without works cannot save. Faith that yields no deeds is not saving faith. Jesus, James, and even Paul in other parts of the New Testament does not teach justification by works, but also does not teach justification by the profession of faith or the claim of faith. It teaches justification by the possession of true faith, and true faith always bears good fruit. This fruit is or works vindicate or proves the validity of one's authentic justifying faith. All this to say, what Jesus is saying is whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister. That our works, our actions, our doing points back and validates the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And so what is this will? What is the will of God? Well, if you can, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. 
few chapters, Matthew 22, starting in verse 36. Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all, depend all the law and the prophets. What is, God, what is the will of God? To love God first, and then to love others. We must desire to put Jesus first. We desire to put Christ first. He must be first in our lives. He must be first above our marriages. He must be first of a, above our children, above our work and careers. He must be first above our schooling, our hobbies, our interests, our money, and even our family. We must love God first. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't love others. We can't love our family. Because the second command is to love our neighbors. And when we love God, and we receive the love of God, and we experience the unconditional love that God has given to us, we then can rightly love one another. But we must value and prioritize our relationship with Jesus over everything even relationship with one's family. Because it's out of that love, when we receive that love, then we can love our family. We can love our church family. We can love those in our family that may not believe in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. We can love our co-workers. We can love those who live next door to us or down the street from us. We can love those who we come in contact with at the grocery store. We love our co-workers. Why? Because we received the unconditional love of Christ. It changes how we see people. It changes how we talk to people. It changes how we relate to people. And so the will of God is to love Him first, above everything else, and then love one another. And by doing so, we will start to talk like Jesus. We'll start to walk like Jesus. When you are a part of a family, you have very you start talking like one another. You start walking like one another. If you see my son Lawson, you know he's my son. He looks like me. There's no doubt about that. He's my son. Because we're family. Maybe another example of this, I recall growing up, there would be often times where I would say something or my dad would say something and it would be the same thing that one of us was thinking or was about to say. We shared the same language. We spoke very similarly. Why? Because we were part of the same family. I looked up to him. I mimicked him. And so people could tell that we spent a lot of time together. We were part of the same family. 
not just because of our looks, but because of our actions as well and how we talked and how we walked. And so in the same way, when we become part of the family of God, we too should start walking like one another. We should start having the same language and talking similarly with one another because we ultimately are reflecting and growing to be like Christ. And last week we talked about how one can put off moral or evil sin. They could reject that, but yet not be filled with the Holy Spirit. But being part of the family of God, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does a work within us. It sanctifies us to make us more like Christ. And so then when we go out into this world, when we gauge this world, we live in such a way, we talk in such a way, we walk in such a way that we start looking more like Christ and having conversations that point people to Christ. We start guiding people to Christ. And so, do we look, do we act, do we talk, do we walk like Christ? Because we are part of His family. The last point that I want to make this morning is this. We don't need any special ties to become a part of the family of Christ. We don't need to be related to anyone famous or special to be a part of the family of Christ. We don't need to come from the bloodline of Mary and his brothers to be a part of the family of Christ. We don't need to have our great-great-great-grandparents become be priests or be very religious to be a part of the family of Christ. But we see that those who he's talking about, his disciples, were fishermen, they were zealots, they were tax collectors, and they were part of the family of Christ. And so Jesus' invitation has no ties or strings attached. You don't have to have the right bloodline or be related to people of importance. You don't have to come from a religious heritage. He doesn't care if you have direct lineage from John Calvin or Adolf Hitler. The kingdom of God is not open to who's who, but to whoever. It's open to man like Matthew, a tax collector. It's open to Jews and Gentiles, to men and women, to slave, to free, to saints and sinners. Michael Green, the commentary, summarizes it in this way. The importance of decision about Jesus to a climax. It is, it is possible to be religious like the Pharisees and still not be a part of the kingdom of God. It is possible to be physically related to the Messiah himself and still not be a part of the kingdom of God. Religious practice and religious pedigree are utterly inadequate to bring anybody into the kingdom. There needs to be an acknowledgement of who Jesus is and a determined decision to follow him. I would add that it is belief in Jesus and discipline of doing the will of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Just one other commentator said this, the sense of discipleship is not mere profession, right doctrine, or even charismatic phenomenon. 
but doing the will of God. So the question that Jesus answers today, are you putting Jesus first? And in doing so, does that determine the rest of our life? Does that determine how we interact with one another? Does that determine how we love Him and love others? So a right relationship with God, with Jesus, must take priority over everything, even the relationship with one's family. So today, are you putting Jesus first over everything? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came into this world to save us and redeemed us so that we can be invited into your family, so that we can be a part of your family, so that we can be brothers and sisters and worship you together. Father, I know in my life I haven't always put you first. I'm sure that there may be others here that have not always put you first, and so may we repent of that things putting other things first above you, seeking forgiveness. Father, I also just pray for our church. I pray for the pastoral search team and our next pastor, that you would just continue to prepare our next pastor to come in and shepherd us well. I pray for the finance team as we are approaching and in the midst of budget season, putting together the budget for our next fiscal year. I pray for wisdom in that. I pray for discernment and that we would be faithful with what you have given us. Father, I also pray for our missionaries. Lord, they are out all around the world proclaiming the gospel and bringing the good news to the ends of the earth. So, Father, I pray for our missionaries that you protect their families. I pray that you, they would be seeing fruit from their work. That you would call many into the kingdom and to be a part of the family. Pray that you would bring encouragement where there needs to be encouragement. And Father, may they know that we regularly pray for them. And I pray for just our church family, those gathered here today, that we would be encouraged knowing that we are part of your family. That we have many brothers and sisters, even when our blood relatives may be distant from us, but it may be at times hard to communicate with them. Or maybe even when there's fractions within our family, may we find encouragement that we have many brothers and sisters here within this local community of believers. So thank you for your provision and grace upon us and how you have provided faithfully over these years. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.